All right, Micah chapter 3, verse 1. Then I said, Listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel. Should you not embrace justice, you who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin, and break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. At that time, he will hide his face from them because of the evil they have done. This is what the Lord says. As for the prophets who lead my people astray, they proclaim peace. If they have something to eat, but prepared to raise war against anyone who refuses to feed them. Therefore, night will come over you without visions and darkness without divination. The sun will set for the prophets and the day will go dark for them. The seers will be ashamed and the diviners disgraced. They will all cover their faces because there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power and the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. Hear this, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, who despise justice and distort all that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they look for the Lord's support and say, Is the Lord not among us? No disaster will come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field, Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble, the temple hill a mound overgrown with thickets. Hear the word of the Lord. Well, good evening, everybody. My name's John Forsyth. I have the great privilege of being the vicar at St. Jude's. I've got a very special name badge this evening uh, with a translation below. So, uh, big shout out to Lydia. Thank you. Very advanced. <laughs> very advanced. She's on her way to being a doctor, I'm pretty sure, with that handwriting. Well, we have before us this afternoon um, arguably the darkest chapter of Micah. Uh, Certainly some very confronting language. Uh, As I said this morning, it's not really a verse you see cross-stitched on a pillow uh, anywhere or put on a Christian poster. There's not a lot of Christian craft for little kids uh, based on this chapter. Uh, But what we see here is a warning particularly addressed to God's leaders. As God speaks through Micah, they are addressed to the leaders of God's people who have failed abysmally. What we see is toxic and sinful leadership in action and its disastrous effects on God's people. Now, there's much that we can learn from this. We need to be careful, of course, because uh, Mike is addressing it to a particular context, a particular time, and and the people of God are are a nation. We, of course, are a church made up of people from all different nations. But, of course, I think there are still some, some key parts that we can take away, particularly for those of us in leadership. Uh, Whatever your leadership is, These are words that we must heed because it's not just an individual responsibility, it's a corporate responsibility that Micah lays before us. And I want to highlight uh, four aspects of the sinful failure of these leaders and I've worked hard to make them all start with C for your benefit. 
uh, it's a comprehensive problem, see? Secondly, uh, it's due to corrupt hearts. Thirdly, it's resulted in commercialised relationships. And fourthly, it's resulted in compartmentalised worship. So it's comprehensive, corrupt, commercialised and compartmentalised. I've worked hard, like I said. And there are, there are two bonus C's later on, just to, keep, just to keep things interesting. But first of all, notice that this is a comprehensive failure of leadership. And what I mean by that is, it's not just a few bad apples in the barrel. It's not just a couple of rotten eggs. The whole thing is a mess. See, leaders bear the responsibility not just for themselves, but for, for all the people that they lead. They set up structures, that they establish the culture. And it's that cliche, right? The fish rots from the head down. And here we have that there are, there are leaders, those who are meant to lead and administer justice uh, amongst God's people. There are the priests who are meant to mediate and intercede uh, between God and his people. And there are the prophets who are there to speak God's word to his people. Different roles of leadership. And God has given these, they're ordained roles, they're good roles. They're part of his covenant, his promise with his people to say, look, let me help you set up your society, your culture, your, your people to live in peace, to live in shalom, to live in blessing. If you go back to Deuteronomy 20, 28 verse 1, this great promise that if you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow his commands, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on the earth and all the blessings will come to you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. So then given this kind of thing, you, you, here are some great structures, some great leadership opportunities. Lead well. But the opposite has happened. A comprehensive failure of leadership. Verse 1, the leaders of Israel, the rulers of, uh, sorry, the leaders of Jacob, the rulers of Israel are addressed directly. Verse 5, uh, as for the prophets, those who lead my people astray. Verse 9, hear this you, leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, who, de who despise justice and distort what is right. Verse 11, her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, her prophets tell fortunes for money. In other words, there's a comprehensive failure of leadership here with God's people. It's endemic. It is everywhere. And notice too, it's for both the religious and non-religious leaders. In other words, it's everyone's responsibility. Which leads us to the second point, the second C, corruption. The heart of the issue, why these leaders so comprehensively failed, well... It's because they've forsaken justice and become completely and utterly corrupt. Going back to verse 1, uh, Micah says to them, Then I said, Listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, should you not embrace justice? That little word embrace is really, really interesting. It's actually the Hebrew word to know. Uh, back in Genesis 3, where God speaks of the knowledge of the tree of, uh, that gives you knowledge of good and evil, that's the same word. Uh, it also is the language of often sexual relations in the Bible. When Adam sleeps with his wife Eve, it actually says, Adam knew his wife. In other words, it's not just intellectual knowledge, it's not just kind of information you shove in your head, it's intimate relational knowledge that kind of comes out and is expressed 
in the way that you live. It's your character, not just information. And so what Micah is teaching here is that leaders are not just aware of justice. Yes, I can answer the pub quiz on what, what justice is. I can write a really good essay on what justice is. No, it's, it's people who are deeply shaped and formed by justice. It leaks out of them. It drives them. They embrace it. That's the call for God's leaders. Do you live out justice? And by the way, it gets worse, by the way. Verse 2, look what it says here. You who hate good and love evil. It's such really powerful, emotive language that Micah uses. Not just indifferent to good or evil or haven't really given it much thought. No, they hate good and they love evil. Hate is that kind of, that visceral reaction, that, that, that bile in your throat, that reviling of, oh, just towards good. And love, they love evil. You know when your heart skips a beat when you see that special person across the room or that thing you long for that's on eBay and you're, you're just watching the countdown till you get it and you, you stay awake at night thinking about it, right? That's how they see evil. They are lying awake at night, mulling over the beauty of evil. That's, that's how corrupt these leaders are. And what's the result? Well, let's read on in verse 2. It's those who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who eat my people's flesh, strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. That's pretty confronting language. And what's it the language of? It's the language of cannibalism, right? It's utterly evil and brutal. Now, God's people aren't, the leaders aren't literally doing this. They aren't literally cannibalising people. So why does God use such strong language, such emotive language? And the answer is he, he wants to teach. He wants to teach them and us something. He wants them to feel the weight of their evil. This is, he's saying, look, this is not a little thing that's gone wrong. It shows you the depth of their corruption and sin. Their failure to administer justice has reduced them from being human to being almost like animals. They have reduced people to a commodity rather than someone who is made in God's image. Something that you pay by the kilo for, right? That's what you do with, with meat. You pay by the kilo. It's, it's a transaction. It's not a relationship. And we have similar language in verses 9 and 10 where the, the leaders of Jacob and the rulers of Israel despise justice, distort what is right, and build Zion. By the way, Zion is another word for the city of Jerusalem, with beautiful stones and, and artworks. No, no, with bloodshed. And Jerusalem with wickedness. That is how evil these, these leaders are. And as they dehumanise others, they're actually dehumanising themselves. But that's not how God sees his people. These, uh, uh, these people. Notice he says in verses 2 and 3, they're always called my people. My people. You're doing this not just to some people, but to my people, says God. 
They're made in my image. They belong to me. That They're my precious children. And what this means is that you and I have never looked into the eyes of someone who doesn't matter to God. You've never looked into the eyes of someone who doesn't matter to God. Justice is a crucial thing for God's people. Not an optional extra. It's part of who we are. Because we see people as God sees them. If they're precious to God, how can they not be precious to us? It should, I mean, if, if, uh, if Micah had understood DNA, he would say, it should be in your DNA. It should be part of who you are, part of your culture. Justice, love good and hate evil. That's what we're called to do. And so it's a great warning if you're in leadership because the temptation can be to start seeing relationships as transactional. What can I get out of them? They might not be at this kind of end of you know, complete uh, oppression, but, but how, do you, how do you get there? You start at one step at a time. Do you see people as valuable to God? Do you see your role as serving, not consuming? Do you put up with those people who are hard to put up with? Why? Because when you look into their eyes, that is someone who matters to God. Well, thirdly, commercialised. See, one of the, the main ways this leadership has become corrupt is people, these leaders, are, are rather than seeking what's best for God's people, are seeking to line their own pockets. Uh, pockets. It's financial gain. It's cash. This is what the Lord says in verse 5. As for the prophets who lead my people astray, they proclaim peace. Well, that sounds good, right? Or if they have something to eat, uh, but prepare, wage, prepare to wage war against anyone who refuses to feed them. See, what we have here is, is spiritual abuse. Spiritual abuse. About getting what they want preaching in order to get what you want, to, to build their own power. What determines what is preached is not God's word, but how full the preacher's stomach is. Verse 11, her leaders judge for a bribe, her, te- her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. It's not talking about being paid for the job. It's saying, no, this is now the motivation and the goal of the job. It's a profits for profit. Right? That's, that's the kind of new, the new slogan of these prophets. Not prophets that teach God's word. No, prophets for cash, prophets for profit. I'll tell you what you want to hear if I hear a little cash in my pocket. I'll judge in your favour if you do me a favour. I won't preach against your sins if the price is right. In other words, justice is for sale. And that's the golden rule. You know the golden rule? Whoever has the gold makes the rules. Not the one that Jesus taught us, which is far better. Whoever has the gold makes the rules. And that's what's being happening here. It's exploitation. It's not justice. Now the temptation I think here is to see these verses as not applying to us because sometimes we feel so far away from where these leaders are. Right? The prosperity doctrine, if you love God, you'll get rich or you should exploit people for money. Most of you are going, yeah, I think I'm on board with that, right? We should be on board with that, right? I'm not here to make John rich. Good, that's why I'm here either, right? Uh, Here's the danger is we get there in small steps as our integrity is just pushed that little bit 
and then that little bit, and then that little bit. Because these leaders didn't start with exploring the poor from doing everything right in one day. It's small moments. It's small steps. Uh, it, it's like Breaking Bad, if you've seen that TV show, which is extraordinary, which shows this, pro, this whole progress. And it's small moments where Walter White slowly, uh, uh, month by month, and it's very human moments where you can almost agree with the decisions he makes. They seem individually like understandable decisions, yet they push him further and further away. And brothers and sisters, we live in a world, a culture where cash is king, where finance is such a huge part of, of, of our world. It's not that money is bad, it's that the worship of money is a horrible thing. It's an evil thing. And financial success is everything. That's what our culture says. And the temptation is to go for money over integrity. And it will always be a thin wedge. Because you can see the fat wedge, they're the easy ones. Let me give you two, two examples of some friends of mine. Uh, there's a mate of mine, John, who helps run a laboratory which uh, tests blood and other things for disease to see whether people have different diseases. And as part of this job, uh, they use a software program. And I'm no expert in software uh, for medical things, but it's one of those subscription ones, right? A bit like Netflix, uh, except a lot more expensive. Uh, and at the end of the cycle, for some reason, the renewal kicked in automatically. And he realised they could save serious cash, tens of thousands of dollars, by not letting the, the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the software company know that their renewal had run out. And his boss was hinting at this was the way to go. Think of the money we'd save. Think of the research we can do to help people by saving this money. Can you see the thin edge of the wedge there, right? It's a victimless crime, right? John said, if you don't pay, I'll quit. Here's the two I see. If you don't pay, I'll quit and I'll say why I quit. Okay, that's, that's our big call, right? Or another friend of mine, uh, Ruben, who works for a university and uh, when his marking had been done, uh, his boss had said to him, hang on a second, you have a lot of overseas students in your class and overseas students bring in a lot of cash, right, because they pay full fees up front. Uh, and a lot of them are failing just by a little bit. The high 40s. Perhaps you could rethink their marks because then our department will receive a lot more funding and think of the research you could do, right? And good, Right? Everyone loves puppies and kittens. Right? He's not saying we're going to murder puppies and kittens. That's evil, right? No, no. We're going to save puppies and kittens. Just pass those students. No, not pass, just rethink their marks. Have a rethink. Maybe you're a bit harsh. Can you see, can you see the thin end of the wedge? There's, there's the integrity at stake. And they're the little breaks. And he said, no. <laughs> we're not past people who shouldn't be passed. I'll pass me if they need to be passed, yes, if they're, if they're rightfully passed, but no. And we'll forsake that money. Needless to say, he wasn't popular in the faculty lounge. Why? Because he chose a position of integrity over money. And you will face those moments in your workplaces, if you haven't already. If you haven't already. Success is not prosperity, but it is justice. Where is the justice in your work? My wife was sharing as we over lunch today, because we had the same passage preached at Carlton, 
she's doing training to work as a teacher's aide, and she says, I now can see how justice works in my job, helping kids with learning disabilities have a just access to learning. Right? Can you see how that works? Right? Your, your job, where's the justice in your job? Where are you helping people find... And, and if, you look, if you think hard, it'll be there. Yes, you'll pay it for it, but, but look for those moments where there is justice and integrity. Uh, fourthly, notice how what has happened is these leaders have compartmentalised their worship. Now, what I mean by that is, it's really interesting. These leaders, they look, they're thoroughly corrupt and they're evil, but they've not stopped worshipping God. They're just worshipping God in a really weird way uh, on their own terms. Uh, verse 4, right? They do cry out to the Lord. Right? That's not something you kind of do unless you believe in God, right? Uh, in verse 11, the second half, it says, "Yes, they look to the sorry. Yet they look to the Lord's uh, look for the Lord's support and say, Is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. They're religious, right? They go to church on Sundays or Saturdays, probably because it's Jewish, right? But what they've done is they've compartmentalised their worship. They've separated their everyday life from their worship of God." We can do anything we want. We can exploit people, we can make cash, all good. As long as we keep this, you know, that God bit just, just in case. When things go bad, we'll cry out to God. And what they've done is they've reduced God to a lifeboat. This is what I call, I've invented this term this week, trademark foresight, lifeboat theology. Right? Now my question, like, you can have a lifeboat theology, so you keep God in the back pocket just in case. It's in case of fire break glass. It's, I'll hang out when I need God. Then, then, then I'll, I'll say, God, I'll cry out. So how does God then kind of respond to their, their lifeboat theology, their lifeboat worship? Verse 4. Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. At that time, he will hide his face from them because of the evil they've done. They will cry out, God won't answer. Now, just, just a little aside here. You might be thinking, look, aren't there lots of Bible verses where God promises to hear us when we cry out? And what if I, I do deeply and, and, and desperate to cry out to God, thinking of like Psalm 40, for example, I cry out to the Lord, he, he, he heard my cry and he came to me. What's going on? Will God answer me when, when I cry out or will I face the same horrible outcome that these leaders face? What, what's going on with these leaders that, that makes it that God doesn't cry out? And the answer is they cry out and have no answer because they're not crying out in faith and they're not crying out in repentance and they're not crying out for God's mercy, really. They're crying out in hypocrisy. See, they want justice to be saved from, up, from upcoming strife, yet they're not willing to live out justice. They're not crying out in repentance or faith. They've compartmentalised their faith. And it's tempting for us to do as well. You can't just reduce your faith to what you do on Sundays or during your small group, right? Three hours a week is, is not a way of reducing, kind of, it doesn't work that way. It's a bit like saying a bride is somebody who walks down the aisle at a wedding. Now the answer is yes, 
a bride does walk down the aisle at a wedding, but that, that's not the complete description. It's thoroughly incomplete. Yes, Christians go to church, or should. Go to small group, great. But that's a, a dramatically uh, tiny, uh, incomplete view of what it means to be a follower of Christ. See, one of the challenges is we've been told that our faith is private, right? You've got to keep your faith private. Your faith is private. And the answer is, of course, no, your faith is not private. Your faith is personal. And what I, what I mean by that is you can only own your own faith. You can't be a Christian for somebody else. It's personal but not private. That is, it, it, it overflows into every aspect of your life. You worship God with every part of who you are. In your workplace, your character and worshiping God would mean how do you treat people at work? How do you work with respect and love and care? How are you selfless in your marriages? How do you treat your parents with dignity? How do you work with your finances? See, see how it leaks into every other part. You don't kind of rationalise any part. And so perhaps a good question to ask is, look, what part of your life is not yet under the Lordship of Christ. Which bit is kind of locked away, is, is compartmentalised? Is it, is it your anger? Or your gossip? Or your finances? Or your sexual relationships? Or, or your arrogance? Or your pride? And how are you going to hand them over to Christ? Because he's not just Saviour, he's Lord. And that was the challenge for these leaders. They saw God as their Saviour but didn't want God as Lord. Saviour and Lord. So they're the four C's. But I promised you more C's, didn't I? Two more, two more bonus C's. Condemnation. See, the warning we read in Micah 3 is that these unjust leaders face the fearsome certainty of God's justice. Their actions are condemned. God calls them out. And notice in verses 4 to 7 how God's judgment is linked with these two ideas of silence and darkness. Verse 4. They will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. Silence. At that time, he will hide his face from them because of the evil he has done. Now, the idea of God hiding his face, it's a metaphor. It's not like he literally has a face that he turns away. Uh, God's face shining upon you, as it says in number six, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. It's a sign of God's blessing and favour. When someone turns their face to you, Oh, there we go. it's a sign that you're in. Yeah, it's nice. You can see their face, right? It's a sign of blessing, of relationship. For God to turn his face is to turn away his blessing. I've had that moment actually happen in a, in a, over a lunch where this woman found out I was an Anglican minister. We had a lovely, very pleasant conversation and as soon as she found out, she turned her back on me. I, I, she'd obviously had some terrible experience. I'm not here to judge her, but I thought, oh, that's the turning of the face. There it is. It's saying that there is a problem here. And notice too that there's symbols of darkness and night which were really common symbols of God's judgment. Verse 6, 
Therefore night will come over you without visions and darkness without divination. The sun will set for the prophets and the day will go dark for them. He's not just saying it's night time. Notice that there's no visions, no divination. Uh, In other words, God is turning away his blessing. They will cover their faces because there's no answer from God. And that contrasts with Micah who has the spirit, right? In the very next verse, in verse 8. God is distant from them. Now it's really important we understand exactly what's going on here because one of the things Christians can often say is that uh, when God judges people, he's, he kind of, we're separated from God. You may have heard that language when we face God's judgment. Uh, we need to be careful. We're not saying that God is not sovereign or present because God is everywhere. There's nowhere where God says, oh, I didn't realise there was a, another part of the created order that I wasn't aware of. He's not kind of distant from it that way. It means he's not present in grace and intimacy, he is present in judgment, if that makes sense. We are separated from God's mercy and blessing, not his presence, so to speak. And so we often speak about God being near or far, if you've read the scriptures. It's not about distance, like God is 50 k's away, now he's a metre away, no, no. It's about a relational distance. I mean, we kind of mean the same thing. Like when we speak of a friend or a family member coming from overseas, it's not just the distance, right? It's the relational closeness. That's, what, that's, that's why it's exciting. It's not that your, your, your sister or whatever who's coming from England is now only a metre away from you as opposed to 14,000 kilometres, I'm roughly about right. It's the fact that she's now present relationally. That's the beautiful thing. And that's the language of Scripture. And notice too that this judgment is so vast and complete that even the temple in Jerusalem, which was the the sign of God with his people, the very kind of visible and huge thing, will be destroyed along with the city. In verse 12, Because of you, Zion, once again that's just another name for Jerusalem, will be ploughed like a field, Jerusalem become a heap of rubble, and the temple hill a mound overgrown with thickets. And And in that culture of the day, repetition is emphasis. Repetition is emphasis. Repetition is emphasis. Three times, he says, Israel, the temple, Jerusalem, will be destroyed. Now, why is this good news? This sounds like a pretty dark chapter, right? And it's good news because we know for sure that God will not let injustice go unjudged. Evil and injustice don't win. And I find that of such comfort because so often I see evil and injustice and it seems like it's, it's just rampant and people get away with stuff. And the best case scenario in kind of in, with a human hat on, human justice, is always flawed and incomplete and unsatisfying. Even our best attempts at justice Two, two recent examples you may have read in the paper recently, the reopening of the William Tyrrell case about a, a cute little kid who went missing up in the, in the central coast, of New, uh, sorry, mid-north coast of New South Wales, right near where my in-laws live. I've been down the streets where, where that happened. He's gone missing. No one knows where he is. Where, where's the justice, right? Detectives, everyone's working hard. Or the Bruce Lim and, and Brittany Higgins case, Right? I just feel there seems to be no way of having a satisfactory outcome. Our hearts long for justice, yet our attempts are always 
incomplete and unsatisfactory, yet we know that God's justice never fails. And there is such hope there. Evil doesn't win. And so if you've been a a victor or a survivor of something evil, of leadership that's evil, then you can know for certain that God brings justice. God rights all wrongs. So is this chapter without hope? The answer is, of course, like every good Christian answer, yes and no. See, the big theme of Micah is hope through judgment. You can't have hope without judgment. In other words, unless evil is dealt with, unless injustice is dealt with, how can you have hope? You're just left with injustice. But what's very interesting is if you go to the very next verse in Micah, you have a picture, a vision of the temple restored and rebuilt. Like the very last verse of chapter 3, smashed and destroyed three times. The very first verse of chapter 4, in those days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of all the mountains. Higher than Everest, right? It will be exalted above the hills and the people will stream to it. See the massive contrast between that and the previous verse? The Lord Almighty will be prophet, priest and king, not just over Israel, but notice all the nations are coming, all the people are coming. So how can we have these two things side by side, both bringing judgment and bringing hope? The answer is, of course, through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is often referred to as, speaks of himself as being the temple of God with us, who is the perfect prophet who who would speak God's words without fear or favour. The perfect priest who intercedes for us, in fact, offers himself as a sacrifice. And the perfect king who, who rules over all with justice and with mercy. Who dealt with the sin, not just with the leaders, but of all of his people, which includes you and me. And I wonder if you, if you noticed, if you were kind of looking really, really closely at, at Micah 3, I've coined a phrase, I don't know if it works, future echoes. Can, can you say that? That is, hints of what's to come. They're just, they're just hints of what's to come about the cross. See, Jesus is put to death by leaders who do not embrace justice. He's an innocent man. Jewish and Gentile leaders both know this, yet he's put to death. And though he's perped and without sin, he bears our sin on the cross. And what happens when he dies? There is darkness, right? Darkness, the same thing we see in Micah 3. And there is silence. He cries out to God, just as these leaders have done. And what does God say? Nothing. Silence. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And just like these leaders, more completely Jesus bears the furious and terrifying wrath of God. But not for his sin, for our sin. But is that the end of the story? No, the end of the story is that that Christ is raised to life to give us hope. And so friends, let us look to Jesus as the perfect model of leadership, of integrity, 
of grace, of mercy, whose character is shaped by justice. For he is the only hope, not just if you're a leader, but indeed for all of us. Let me pray that we would fix our eyes to Christ in these things. Our gracious Lord, Father, you only know the sin that has been committed by leaders. The toxic and sinful effect that leadership has both in your church and more broadly. Father, we thank you that in your mercy in Christ there is forgiveness and there is hope. May we be women and men who seek to lead with a Jesus-shaped integrity. May we be people who not just know about justice, who can quote great quotes about justice, but may we embrace justice. May it be a part of what we do and how we act and be uh, deep within our character. And we pray all these things for the glory of the risen Christ who is our only hope. Amen.